Psalm 8. Follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, just in case it sounds different from the version that you have. This is attributed to David. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Yet you have made Him a little lower than God, and you crown Him with glory and majesty. You make Him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, help us now, we ask, to bring our hearts in line with the truth of this Scripture. Help us to recognize and acknowledge afresh the majesty of your name, your reputation, your work in this created order, and the unique privilege that is ours to see and to know not just your work, but the way in which you have placed us in the midst of your creation to seek and to serve you. Father, ultimately we thank you that all of these things point us to the perfection that we find not in ourselves but in Jesus Christ, who redeems us from our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion and brings us back into harmony as sons and daughters. Guide us now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get towards the, uh, the end of a calendar year and you come up on New Year's, I don't know uh, what you do if you have a little bit of time off, or, uh, and if you do, what you do with the extra time that you have, right? If you have kids in the house, a lot of that time is going to be taken up with doing stuff with kids or just trying to make sure they don't burn the house down. Or if you don't have kids, maybe you have the opportunity to travel and to meet up with extended members of family or other friends or something like that. We didn't do anything uh, crazy or super uh, impressive. We were basically here kind of floating around town for the most part and in between uh, family members and cousins' homes and all that kind of stuff. So some of my time was, uh, was spent listening to podcasts and uh, watching Netflix. There you go, all right? Now, having said that, not just any podcast, not just anything on Netflix, right? Only the best of the best. So the podcast had to be something related to either theology, politics, or culture. Netflix had to be comedy. So... Here's where those worlds begin to collide. A couple of the podcasts that I was listening to was sort of one of those year-in-review things. So you, you, uh, you go through the year, what, you know, what was the biggest news in, uh, in the American church over the, you know, the course of this year, or in politics, or something like that. And one of the things that was interesting, in, on two separate occasions, two, two different podcasts, the, the individuals who were participating both remarked on the fact that one of the things that stood out to them about 2021 was that this was the year that we were supposed to get over all of the trouble that we had in 2020. And it didn't happen. Right? And of course, at the top of that list is all the trouble that came as a result of of COVID and the complications there. We were expecting that because of vaccines and shots and therapeutics and this, that, and the other, that we were going to get over that hump, that we were going to master this problem that had been creating all these, uh, these you know, losses and difficulties and complications, and that 2021 was just going to be smooth sailing, and it turned out that we did not have the year well in hand. And then, on the flip side of that, 
just trying to get something a little bit more lighthearted and to find something a little bit funny to be a little bit of distraction from the heaviness that's around you. You pull up on Netflix, uh, a comedian that's doing a stand-up routine, and he mentions 2021. And he likens it to a parent who has to wake up late at night to change a dirty diaper, changes the dirty diaper, brings the child slowly back to the crib and is ever so gently placing the child back into the crib and just as the baby is touching the mattress in the crib, you hear the diaper fill again. He said, that's, that's 2021. All right, you think that you're done. You think that you're over the mess and the insanity only to be surprised that no, here it is again. All right. One of the things that struck me was in, in reading and thinking and studying, getting ready to, to look at Psalm 8, was one of the ways that Psalm 8, I think, actually shed some light on that sort of frustration. Let me go ahead and, and give you a, a little bit of a hint or a preview as to where we're going with this so that you don't think I'm, I'm just sort of, you know, bouncing around in sort of ADD-like fashion or something like that. I think one of the problems that we encountered in 2021, one of the things that is being brought to the forefront of our minds, is the fact that we are not in control. The difficulty with that, right, we, we all pay lip service to the fact that we're not in control. We're all grateful to acknowledge that, right? That's what any self-respecting Christian would do. But there's something that God has created in sort of the very fabric of our being where even though we recognize we're not in control, there's still a desire on our part to take control. In part because of what we read here in Psalm 8, which is a reflection on what God did in the very beginning of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, where God creates this magnificent world that's just a speck in a much greater cosmos, in a much greater universe, and he places these little image bearers, man and woman, in his creation to rule and to reign, to have dominion over the earth. There, there is a good God-given instinct, in other words, that we have, that I think has been implanted in us to try to not only identify difficulties or problems, but to try to master them to try to tame them, to try to bring them in line in some way that chaos now becomes order, that barrenness becomes fruitful, that insanity becomes peaceful, right? That sort of thing. And, and when that impulse is frustrated, oftentimes we don't know what to do with it. Psalm 8, I think, touches on that a little bit, and then I think what happens is the New Testament picks up on Psalm 8 to say, now yes, all of that in Psalm 8 is true, but the frustration that you feel that your life does not look exactly like Psalm 8 in that pristine picture that we'll look at here in just a second, all of that, that tension is satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to look at in, in, at least in two fundamental ways, two key points that are made in Psalm 8, and then we want to make the transition to how does Psalm 8 point us to the person of Christ to, to tie all of this together, even to sort of alleviate some of the tension that we feel as we read a psalm like this. All right, so if, you, if you're opening Psalm 8, you want to go back to that text, and you want to take a look at it, and you want to note First off, that this is, this is overwhelmingly positive in the tone, in the text, in the content of the psalm. Reflecting on what God has done in creation, reflecting on what God has done with His people in creation, there is no mention of sin. There is no mention of brokenness. It's just reflecting back on, here is God's original design, this is what He intended life to be like, and that in and of itself is worth praising God for. The tension comes in when we recognize that life does not look as neat and pristine and perfect as what Psalm 8 sounds like. What do we do with that? But before we get to that answer, which is found in Christ, we have to take Psalm 8 as it stands on its own. 
So two things that we want to take note of in Psalm 8. Number one, we want to consider what Psalm 8 has to say, particularly in the first two verses, about the Lord's, what we'll call the Lord's unassailable majesty. You might say something like His untouchable or irrevocable, unassailable, right? It can't be touched. It can't be hindered. His unassailable majesty. And then second, from the majesty of the Lord that we see in Psalm 8, we want to consider our unlikely glory. So His unassailable majesty and then our unlikely glory. So verses 1 and 2. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And there's something that you want to take note of here right away. In most of your versions, you probably have a different font for the first Lord compared to the second Lord in verse 1. Do you see that? The first Lord should be in all caps, and the second Lord should have a capital L but then be in lowercase. The reason that is, that's a way for our English versions to demonstrate that the first Lord that's written in all caps is the divine name, is the name Yahweh, God's covenant name for His people. So, O Yahweh, our Lord. That second Lord, that's not written in all caps, is a word that can be used in any number of contexts to refer to a king or a master or someone who's in charge. So, you could say something like, O Yahweh, our sovereign, or O Yahweh, our master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The point is this, don't miss the fact that right off at the beginning and in the introduction and in the conclusion, the way that the psalm starts and the way that the psalm ends, almost everything that's written here is predicated on the idea that because we know the Lord for who He is, in other words, because we know Him personally according to His covenant relationship with us, we have special insight and recognition into who God is and what He's done. If you don't know the Lord personally, if your eyes have not been opened to see His majesty in His Word, in the works of His hand in creation, none of the rest of the psalm is going to land on your heart and mind. It's, it's going to hit you with a thud, and it's going to bounce off. The people who can really sing and identify with this psalm are people who first and foremost actually know who God is that He's not just some distant power or deity, but that He is personal and close to His people, that He enters into covenant with them so that He can make Himself known and not remain hidden. And when He does that, when He makes Himself known to His people, it's as if a whole new world opens up and the blinders have been taken off and the whole world itself is seen in a totally new way in different light. Everything that you see, once you come to see and know the Lord personally, everything that you see shouts about the glory and the majesty and the power and the wisdom of the Lord who created us and everything that we see. Paul goes so far as to say that the problem with humanity is that from the very beginning, this is Romans chapter 1, from the very beginning, all of humanity knows instinctively when they look at creation that there is someone who did all of this. That the creation itself gives evidence of the invisible attributes, the majesty of God. But that because our hearts are so twisted and bent and determined on being our own God, that rather than acknowledge what we know to be true by the evidence around us, that we swim in, that we breathe in every day, that we actively suppress that knowledge and turn it into a lie. We say, no, it happened by chance. Or no, it could have happened in any number of different ways, multiverses. We know, though, 
Because we know the one who made all of this, that when we step out into the world, when we walk out our front door, whether the sun is shining or whether it's raining, whether it's warm or whether it's cold, we know that everything that happens is held in fine tune because of a wise, all-powerful Creator who is showing off how majestic He is by this world that He has given to us. His majesty means that He is superior, that there is no one that touches Him. There's no one that holds a candle to Him. His strength is unrivaled. His power is is unapproachable. You cannot match it. Notice then what the psalmist goes on to say. Because the majesty of the Lord is so worked into the very fabric of creation, it is set not just in the, the, the warp and woof of this world that we live in. It is actually established high above in the heavens. We can touch it and feel it, and yet we can't touch all of it. In verse 2, the psalmist says, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. What in the world does that mean? And what does it have to do with anything about God's majesty? Here's what I think it means. I think it means that because God is God and there is no one who can knock Him off of His throne, because there is no one who can undo what He has done, there is no one who can come back to Him and say, you did this wrong, or this is a way that we could improve upon it, because God's majesty is untouchable, because He sits high and lifted up, He needs no one to defend Him or to argue for Him. In fact, he is so safe and so secure in his majesty and his rule and reign, the Lord says, I'll tell you what, if I'm going to have someone speak for me, I'll take the most weak and helpless members of this creation, and I'll just let them speak on my behalf. That's how little I need you wise, smart, strong, powerful people. Give me the infants and the babies. They'll be sufficient. Right? If, you, if, you're, if you're an all-pro NFL player and you go home to enjoy Thanksgiving dinner with your extended family, right, and you're dividing up for a, for a game of family football, you're not really concerned about getting the, the most athletic members of your family on your team. You'll take anyone because you know that you're going to dominate that game of family football. I don't speak from personal experience. (laughs) In fact, one of the ways that you demonstrate your prowess, your superiority, is that you say, tell you what, guys, you just give me all of the kids that you don't want, who can't catch, who can't run, who don't know how to play football, give them all to me, and I'll be good. That's what the Lord does in this created order. He does not need our help, our defense, to establish or promote or keep propped up His majesty. It is what it is, whether we acknowledge it or not. Hold your place here and go to Matthew chapter 11. Let me, let me show you a way that Jesus Himself draws on Psalm 8 or at least an aspect of Psalm 8. To make this point, John, I'm sorry, what did I say? Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. 
Later, when Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, the religious leaders are offended that the children are singing praises to Jesus. Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. And when they go to complain to Jesus, you know what Jesus does? Jesus says, haven't you read Psalm 8? He doesn't actually say Psalm 8. Haven't you read where it's written that out of the mouths of children and, and infants, I've established praise as a defense against the enemy? Kids are going to sing. But here's the point. From Psalm 8 to Matthew 11, Jesus says that the people who have been able to see what God is, what He has done in the person of Jesus Christ are infants, which means that if you are here today and you have come to see God as the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer of His creation in Jesus Christ, you count as one of the infants in Psalm 8-2. You count as one of the weak and one of the helpless. Feel good about yourself? Let me tell you why that's good news. It's good news because sometimes when we are brought into the kingdom of Christ and we are trying to serve Him and obey Him, we fall under the idea or the notion that if I don't get this done, it's not going to happen. Or if I make a misstep, then all of God's reputation, the, the fame and the glory of Christ, rests on my success and what I do. It doesn't. God no more needs you to help Him than He needs an infant. You don't have anything to add. You don't have anything to secure. What you and I get to do as these weak, helpless children who belong to our Creator and our Savior is we simply get to sing and enjoy Him. And all of the attacks, all of the naysayers, all of the doubts, all of the detractors in the world don't change the fact that the Lord rules and reigns. It is not on us to keep God on the throne. It is for us to enjoy that He is there. Do you enjoy it? Do you revel in being able to sing the praises of your Creator and your God, knowing that He does not need anything from your hand? There is no pressure or burden on you. He just tells you to come in and enjoy and delight in who He is. His majesty is unassailable. And from there, though, we turn to this unique perspective that David has on humanity. In light of the unassailable majesty of God who has created all things, this, this covenant-keeping God who has actually revealed Himself to us and entered into a relationship with us, that in and of itself is stupefying. But David goes on and he marvels, but it's not just that we know who he is, it's what he has then condescended to do so that we can know him and participate with him, to be in fellowship with him. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him. Or you might say, what is man that you even remember him? And the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little bit lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You have put all things under his feet. David says, when I look and I see the majesty of God in this theater that He has made that we call creation, 
that just shouts and screams His power and His glory every day, I am stunned to find out that He has handed over the keys to this finely tuned theater to people like us to maintain it and to steward it. Notice who He gives the keys to. Notice who rules and who reigns and who has dominion. What is man, the Hebrew, enosh, is a word that a lot of times in poetic literature is used to highlight not just humanity, but humanity in its weakness and in its frailty. So what is weak and frail man that you would even remember that he exists in light of how vast this universe is? I'm looking at the moon and the stars. David is probably sketching this little song out at night. It's not even in daylight, not even remarking on the sun. Just at night, I look at the moon and the stars. How is it possible that these little specks of dust moving around on this little rock have been given such a dignified role in your creation? You ever take much time to think about the majesty of creation. David says, when I consider the heavens, what, what your fingers have worked out in fine-tuned detail, I think of the moon and the stars. You ever think about the moon and the stars? Anyone know how many stars exist in the universe? All right, let me tell you real quick. The short answer is no one really knows. But if you hop on the Google machine and you ask questions like, how many stars are in the universe, you'll, you'll pull up some web pages, right, National Geographic, NASA, you know, all this kind of stuff, and you'll get estimates like there are, there are estimated to be 100 sextillion stars in the universe. 100 sextillion. That's something like a one with 21 zeros after it. Our sun is one of those stars. It is not even the largest or the biggest star in our galaxy. But our star, the sun, is so big that the earth could fit into that star, that moderate-sized star, 1.3 million times. And it's not even a big star. And it's one among 100 sextillion stars. That the Lord says later in Isaiah, you see all those stars? By the way, the stars that you see and that you can't even see? I put all of them there. I hung them individually. And I know 100 sextillion stars by name. What are you that God even remembers that you exist? What am I that God would even take the time to visit me, to care for me in my weakness and in my brokenness? We haven't even touched on the moon You ever heard of the Bay of Fundy? Right, popular vacation spot, right? Bay of Fundy, it's up in Canada, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, touches a little bit on Maine, so I'm going to score points for my wife who hails from Maine. Bay of Fundy is this little narrow bay that's affected by tidal waters, but because it's narrow, you can, you can see a greater volume of water and rise and fall of the tides, whereas, of course, if you're at the beach, it, it, you know, it looks more manageable because it just comes up further on the beach, but you can actually see rising and ebbing. Judging by or estimating the amount of water that flows in and out of the Bay of Fundy because of how narrow it is, according to the, to the tidal changes, in a 12-hour tidal cycle, the moon essentially shifts 100 billion tons of water. 
100 billion tons of water in 12 hours. And God says in Isaiah, all the waters of the globe I fit in the palm of my hand. But it's not enough for God that He would just be mindful of us. Notice, not only is He mindful of us, not only does He keep all of this held together, not only does He remember that these little specks of dust on this little insignificant rock that we call earth, not only does He remember that we exist, not only does He come and visit us in our time of need to heal us and sustain us and keep us going together, not only does He know us by name and the very hairs of our heads, even more than that, He crowns us. He crowns us with glory and majesty. He makes us something. And He takes all that He has made and put in this world, and He gives it to us to say, I want you to be my little kings and queens, and I want you to take care of this place for me. Who does that? And so what God has done in not only revealing His majesty to His people, giving us the ability to see His power and His authority, He gives us the opportunity to actually get our hands in on that, to take part in this miracle of creation. Not because we've taken it upon ourselves, but from the very beginning, because God has privileged us with the glory and the honor and the majesty that all belongs to Him. He has given us a measure of that so that we can share in this with Him and enjoy His glory more fully. Not only does He give us the right to do that, right, all the way back in Genesis 1, have dominion over the earth, rule over the fish, over the birds. He blesses us, Genesis says, with the capacity to do what He has called us to do. He does not leave us to be frustrated with the responsibility that He's given us. We can bring a measure of order out of chaos. We can achieve a measure of harmony out of things that appear to be disharmonious. All of that was worked out in eternity past and brought about through the simple, authoritative power of God's Word in the opening pages of Scripture. Now, here's the dilemma. The dilemma is, is that we have a very uncomfortable position where we are in the here and now, because on the one hand, we can sing Psalm 8. And we can rejoice over the fact that the majesty of God is unassailable, that He is who He is, and no one can take anything away from Him. That no matter how much we would want to deny the fact that He is King, and a glorious King is that, we can't get away from the evidence that's right in front of our face every waking moment of the day. We can celebrate and we can enjoy the fact that not only does God remember weak, frail creatures like us, but He has actually given us an unusual measure of glory and honor to share in the responsible stewarding and dominion of this miraculous creation. We can celebrate all of that, and we ought to. That's how good and how generous God is. But we also sit uncomfortably on Psalm 8, because we know that for whatever evidence we see of blessing and fruitfulness and success, there is a lot of other evidence for frustration and failure and disappointment. So we go back to, the, to where we started in the opening. We thought that by this time, 
we would be done with COVID. You put the brightest and smartest people in a room, you tell them to map out cells and genes and mRNA and whatever all that other stuff is, see what you can do to fix this. And because of the ability to exercise dominion in the creation, there are things like vaccines and therapeutics and growing capacities to respond to diseases and illnesses and viruses that we're able to bring to bear on this. And yet, at a certain point, we realize, oh, but wait a minute, we haven't actually mastered this. I thought we were well on our way. And then, as Christians, we're reminded, oh, that's right. The dominion that was ours at one particular point in time has been marred and broken by sin. And now, not everything that I would want to master or have control over is actually given to me. Now, not all of the effort that I put into exercising dominion or using wisdom to make a bad situation good, not all the time does that work itself out the way that I think it ought to. We still cannot beat sickness and disease. We still cannot beat mental and emotional illnesses. People are born every day with disabilities. Entire towns are destroyed by wind, by water, by fire. You, you see, all this dominion that we're supposed to have, and yet, all that dominion that we're supposed to have, in one sense, just reminds us of this frustrating element that still exists in life, that the dominion that we really want to see, everything harnessed and working together for good, is not as harnessed as what we would like. What do you do with that? You run to Jesus. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Listen and take note of the fact that the author of Hebrews here quotes Psalm 8 to make a point about Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For he, referring to God, did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, saying, and then here it is, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. You hear what's going on there? Hebrews takes Psalm 8 and says, Yes, on the one hand, Psalm 8 is a song in which we praise God for His majesty displayed in creation that we give humble thanks and awed gratitude to the role and the privilege that He has given us to participate in the theater of His glory. But Hebrew says, in reality, Psalm 8 is talking about Jesus Christ. Because when sin entered into the world, when we rebelled against our God and our King, Instead of a blessing, a curse enters in, and all of the things that should have come to us without frustration, without being impeded, all of that now comes by a hard-fought battle and sometimes doesn't even come at all. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. Eve, you'll be cursed in childbirth. Relationships will be cursed. 
So dominion, but a frustrated dominion. But Hebrews says that the dominion, the perfecting of all of this, the bringing things back to right, God is accomplishing, notice Hebrews 2, 5, in the world to come. In the world to come, not this world, not this age, in the age and world to come, all of the frustrations that we experience in this life, with sorrow, with sickness, with disease, and with death, all of that is going to be done away with. Because Jesus Christ Himself has entered into this created order. God the Son became man, took on a human existence to do what we could not do. That is, to live a perfect life of obedience to His Father. And by His perfect obedience, to take up and secure the crown that we had lost to rule and reign over this creation, and to one day invite us to come in and to share in this perfect, unbroken rule that we only catch glimpses of. So on the one hand, Christians should be the, the kind of people who are not given to one extreme or the other. We should not be overly optimistic as to think that we, by our own ingenuity, by our own strength, by our own effort, can master any sort of problem that comes to us. We can't. On the other hand, just because we can't master every problem, just because our dominion and our control is fleeting, does not mean that we should be in despair because we know there's coming a time when a man will rule and reign perfectly over all of this and put it back together again, and he's on our side. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll end here. Just as sure and obvious and evident that God is a majestic creator and king, just as sure as that is the certainty that we are not exercising dominion over this creation because of one irrevocable, inescapable fact, and that is that we die. That no matter what it is that we may master, no matter what it is that we may exercise dominion over, we ultimately do not even have dominion over our own lives. We cannot stop death. We can't. But He can. Listen to what Paul says, drawing on Psalm 8 in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 25. For he, referring to Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. How do you know that, Paul? Look at what Paul does. He quotes Psalm 8. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Our frustrations, our despair, our despondency that we will inevitably encounter in this life because the dominion that was given to us is a broken and flawed dominion. Because life is not under control. Because we cannot even control our own destiny and our own fate as death makes us painfully aware. All of that one day is going to be erased, people. In the world to come, Hebrews 2, 5, the one who has himself suffered death and been raised again is going to come back and he is going to put death under his feet for all time. He's going to crush it. 
And when he does that, he's going to call all of his brothers and sisters, the ones that he has identified himself with, little kings and little queens. He's going to invite them into the kingdom, and he's going to, he's going to say, come, share this rule and dominion with me. Come, crush sin and sorrow and sickness and death. No more frustration, no more despair, just unbridled, unbroken, perfectly satisfying, fulfilling praise of a people who say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, how we want to look forward to and long for that day, but how embarrassing and humbling it is to admit that in our heart of hearts so often we are far too enamored with the things of this world, not thinking of the world to come. That we think that we have a majesty and a glory that we can sustain on our own rather than recognizing that all things that we have come from your hand. Forgive us, Father, for trying to replace your majesty and your glory with our own. But, Father, how we praise you that in your mercy and grace that you sent your Son to take on human nature, a human body just like ours, to live in perfect obedience to your will, to suffer death, and yet to suffer death in such a way that He actually conquered death on our behalf. And we thank You that because of the regenerating work of Your Holy Spirit, that we are even now tasting the fruit of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ seated at Your right hand. Father, would You cultivate and create in our hearts here at Edgewood a greater and increasing desire to see that rule and reign with our own physical eyes in a renewed heaven and earth. Make that our hope, make that our joy, because there we will see with our own eyes the majesty of our God. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I was sitting over here uh, in the pew, and I can say this because I have the mic next, we are so blessed at Edgewood to have Jonathan here leading us in the teaching and preaching of God's Word uh, as, as we... And, and tomorrow he'll tell me I'm just brown-nosing him. But we are so blessed to uh, hear this, this, this kind of preaching where he goes and looks at a parallel and, and connects Scripture together. It's so amazing to see that. But what do we do with that? What do we do with now that we know that? I want us to be encouraged with a time of response. Um, this particular song is one of my all-time favorites, I Am Resolved. And I just want to read these verses to you, and I want us to respond to what Jonathan just, uh, just taught us. It says, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I am resolved no longer uh, I'm sorry, I am resolved to go to the Savior, leaving my sin and strife. He is the true one. He is the just one. He has the words of life. I am resolved to follow the Savior, faithful and true each day. Heed what he saith, do what he willeth. He is the living way. I am resolved to enter the kingdom, leaving the paths of sin. Friends may oppose me, foes may beset me, still I will enter in. I am resolved, and who will go with me? Come, friends, without delay. Taught by the Bible, led by the Spirit, we'll walk the heavenly way. Let's rejoice, amen? Let's stand and praise Him. I am resolved no longer to linger. 
the just one. He had the words of life. I will hasten, hasten to him. Hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest. I will come to him. Sound great. I am resolved to follow the Savior true each day. Heed what he saith, do what he willeth, he is the living way. I will hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, Jesus the greatest, highest, I will come to to enter the kingdom, leaving the paths of sin. Friends may oppose me, foes may beset me, still I will enter in. I will hasten, hasten to him, hasten so glad and free.